economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Cas Mudde. My guest today is Amy Erica Smith. Amy is an Associate Professor of Political Science and a Liberal Arts and Sciences Dean's Professor at Iowa State University in the U.S. In the 2020-2022 academic years, she's an Andrew Carnegie Fellow. The key focus of her research is, in her own words how ordinary people understand and engage in politics. Her key topical foci are public opinion and religion and politics, and her primary regional expertise is Latin America, in particularly Brazil. In 2019, she published Religion and Brazilian Democracy, Mobilizing the People of God with Cambridge University Press, which is also the key focus of this conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you, Cass. I'm really happy to be here with you. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? Okay, I have two answers to that question. The first one is kind of a joke, I guess. So I went to an arts magnet high school in downtown Dallas, the Booker T. Washington High School for the Performing and Visual Arts. Our mascot was the Pegasus because we didn't have any sports teams. <laughs> More seriously, I guess the first sports team we ever supported, the Dallas Mavericks, when I was about four or five years old. I grew up in Dallas. Yeah. So what is your favorite political song? Oh, my gosh. I don't have a good answer to this, Cass. I'm stumped. I think everything is political. I'm going to ask for a pass. Okay. And finally, what is your favorite political book? Okay, so I have recently read Everything by N.K. Jemison. Oh my gosh, a Broken Earth trilogy, which is a fantasy trilogy that is in some sense a sort of a morality play or a, like a fantasy take on telling the story of slavery, telling the story of extractive economies, of oil economies. There's just lots and lots of themes and resonances from contemporary Earth history in this alternative universe that N.K. Jemison has created. Awesome. So when most people think about religion in Latin America, they think about Catholicism. And they probably also associate the Catholic Church with conservatism and right-wing politics. In a nutshell, what role has the Catholic Church played in Latin American history? Well, it was historically what we could call the religious monopolist in Latin America. The Catholic Church was a hegemon you know, hand in glove with colonization in uh, the first several centuries of Spanish occupation and Portuguese colonization of the New World. So it was a justifier. It was a force for colonization. It provided sort of a blessing on exploitative and extractive practices across the Americas. In the 19th century, states began to distance themselves from the Catholic Church, as most countries went through something like a, a liberal movement in which secular political elites distanced themselves from the church. Most countries established a constitution which defined the country as secular, not all countries, but even the countries that didn't establish a constitution that would define itself as the state is secular, the state did distance itself to some extent from the church, and the church lost power. There were countries like Mexico, which actually went through a revolution that had anti-clerical overtones where the Catholic Church was actually repressed. So the story has been one of gradual distancing. 
The Catholic Church remains incredibly powerful, or not incredibly, but very powerful today. The region is still highly, highly Catholic, probably on average majority Catholic across the entire region. And yet today, the Catholic Church is facing an entirely different reality in which the Catholic Church has to deal with secular political actors that are not necessarily its, you know, ardent supporters. Just as importantly, it has to deal with, most importantly, Protestant and evangelical churches that are competing with it. And so the, the Catholic Church is now competing in a pluralistic religious marketplace for voters or for citizens, for faithful and for political power. Right. Now, before we go to the evangelical movement, there was also, at least in part of the Catholic community, a left-wing turn in the 1960s, right, with liberation theology. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, liberation theology was a movement that was inspired, actually, it grew out of Latin America. It was a global movement that first began in Central America, Brazil, some places of South America, inspired by Catholic clergy's encounters with the very poor of Latin America, and also by their encounters with sort of Marxist thinking and ideas. So it wasn't exactly Marxist, it was certainly inspired by Marxist ideas. Yeah, so it was a movement built around the notion that the Catholic Church had been overly focused on an afterlife that led it not to pay attention to the struggles of the poor in the current world, mm -hmm. and that building the kingdom of God on earth meant addressing the struggles of the poor. Right. So it was very, very powerful for a time in the 1960s and 1970s, and then was subsequently repressed within the church. And at the same time, even though it was repressed in the church, it remained really influential in a quieter way. Generations of priests were trained within the liberation theology framework. And so even today, even though the movement is gone in some sense, its lingering effects, its influences live on in the ideas and the sort of approaches of current priests who were trained by liberation theologians. All right. And so let's go to the rise of the evangelical movement. When did that start and how strong are they in the region today? Yeah, so evangelicalism arrived in Latin America in the late 19th century. Sorry, Latin Americans call all Protestants evangelicals. And so Protestant missionaries first arrived in Latin America in the late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, across the region, and they would establish small communities. Sometimes they were immigrant communities where, you know, most of the Protestants in the region in some places were white people who were identifiably non-native, and they would maintain relatively small pockets. So these communities remained for a long time pretty small. Then in the early part of the 20th century, a wave of Pentecostal conversions began, and Pentecostalism made more inroads in Latin America than had the initial wave of Protestant missionaries. Pentecostalism still remained a relatively small movement, though it was certainly growing over the course of the 20th century, until in the second half of the 20th century, especially the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And from a religious perspective, what's happening is that there is a new form of Pentecostalism that takes off worldwide and really takes off in Brazil, which is neo-Pentecostalism. And this is associated with the prosperity gospel, which is the notion that God is going to bless God's believers, God's going to bless true believers with material prosperity and health in the current life. 
So this notion, as you can imagine, is really, really (laughs) popular with poor people who are moving into cities and dealing with really difficult problems in their own lives. So it also sounds very U.S. American. Are the evangelical churches kind of a form of neocolonialism, or are they, for the lack of a better word, indigenous? It's very hard to answer that question, Cass. There is one school of thought that would say that much of this is a North American imposition on Latin America. You might see that in some like sort of North American leftist discussion of evangelicals in Latin America, but there's very little evidence that it's sort of like an imposition forced on Latin America from the outside. At the same time, evangelicalism and and Pentecostalism clearly came to Latin America through missionaries initially, and evangelical and Pentecostal churches maintain transnational ties. I mean, many religious groups, including the Catholic Church, are transnational entities in many ways. So much of the growth of evangelicalism and Pentecostalism has come from local actors who have converted and then began to convert their neighbors and their friends and their family. This conversion is a, you know, it's a local process driven by local factors and religious groups take on their own local flavors, dealing with their own local issues and have their own vocabularies, have their own ways of thinking about the world. So these are local in many ways. They they have a decidedly local flavor. And at the same time, there's also a transnational influence. And evangelicals are embedded in transnational networks, maintain transnational ties with their peers in the U.S. and to a lesser extent in Europe. Now, evangelical churches have become political players and important political players, but not equally important across the region. So what in general explains the success of evangelical churches and what explains the differences in success among evangelical movements within the region? I mean, I guess for a movement that's so successful, it would be hard for there to be one single factor causing mm-hmm. its growth because it has appealed to so many different groups across so many areas. Yeah, there, there are many reasons that evangelicalism was able to convert people away from Catholicism. First is the structure of the religion, of the religious group as institutions. Evangelicalism was able to respond in a much more agile way than the Catholic Church to changing societal conditions. So what that means concretely is that during this wave of migration of poor people into cities across Latin America, there were not conditions to, say, build adequate affordable housing for people. So they basically set up slums on the peripheries. Evangelical churches were prepared and eager to go into these communities and minister to the poor, to provide networks and community and resources and psychological resources, social resources, spiritual resources to people that help them cope with their dramatically changing lives, cope with poverty, cope with crime, and, you know, figure out new communities for themselves. Catholic Church is a slow-moving and slow-changing structure where training personnel takes a long time within the Catholic Church. It takes years and years of training and resources to make a priest. All it takes to make an evangelical pastor necessarily may be a vision from God. Right. So you can prepare an evangelical pastor in much less time than is needed to prepare a Catholic clergy member. And then, you know, Catholic churches are largely institutions that depend on buildings that are costly to maintain and establish. 
Whereas you can start an evangelical church with, as I said, a vision from God and, you know, three chairs in your living room. And so this is a religious group that's able to agilely respond to changing social conditions. And this is initially how it grows. Then there are things about it that are just it's more fun. I mean, not only is it responding to people's conditions, but it's responding, you know, it's providing people with music that they want. At a time that the Catholic Church is still speaking Latin and Mass, evangelicals are speaking in Spanish and Portuguese in language that people understand and relatable emotional language. So they do a better job of meeting the needs of their clientele in many ways. Right. Now, some authors argue that evangelicalism is more popular among women, and it has actually empowered women both in the household and broader in politics. How does that work? Interestingly, Cass, scholars of religion find that in general, there's a correlation between female gender and religiosity. Mm -hmm. So this is true across religious groups almost universally, with actually with exception of Muslim societies. Across almost all other societies on earth, women tend to be more religiously engaged than our men. And so the same is also true if you go to any Catholic church in Latin America, you will find more women in the Catholic church than men. The different thing about Pentecostalism and Protestantism, especially the newer churches, is that the newer churches have been more open to female leadership than the Catholic church has. So Catholic churches have a reputation in Latin America as being more progressive than evangelical churches. But in this way, by far, evangelical and Pentecostal churches have been more progressive and allowing space for women to enter established churches and things like that. So the women who are entering Pentecostalism and rising through leadership positions in Pentecostalism are not feminists. They are very, and many of them are adamantly not feminists. And at the same time, the movement has been empowering in terms of creating space for women's leadership that Catholicism has not. There's also research that suggests that Pentecostalism has been empowering for, you know, lay women, not just women who get involved in like actually establishing churches or becoming religious professionals. Mm-hmm. Evangelical and Pentecostalism have tended to be good for poor communities often in a material sense in that they have gone into poor communities and ministered to poor communities and then also provided sort of a social infrastructure and means for psychological coping within poor communities that has helped poor communities deal with what somebody calls the pathogens of poverty. So deal with drug abuse, deal with crime, alcoholism in their communities, and any social program, whether religious or not, that helps women deal with problems in their community like drug abuse, alcoholism, and crime is going to empower women because women are disproportionately negatively affected by those kinds of issues. Yeah, absolutely. You've noted several times that there is this competition between Mm -hmm. Catholics and evangelicals, which is in part affecting politics. Two questions about that. First of all, are there significant differences in terms of public opinion between Catholics and evangelicals? And second, how does this competition influence politics in the region? In broad brushstrokes across the region, one thing I can say is that evangelicals across the region tend to be more conservative than Catholics, particularly on issues related to gay rights, LGBTQ issues. Evangelicals and Pentecostals, because these movements started in low-income communities, evangelicals and Pentecostalism were often relatively progressive on questions like economic redistribution, race issues, and the environment. 
So these are not necessarily inherently conservative religious groups on many matters. But on sexuality politics issues, evangelicals have tended to be firmly conservative across the board, across a wide variety of different religious denominations. As far as how this has affected politics, a lot of it depends on the extent to which Catholics have also been engaged in conservative politics across the region. In Brazil, for instance, which I've studied extensively, Catholicism had been strongly influenced by liberation theology and by the fight against the right-wing military dictatorship to the mm -hmm. point that Catholicism had moved not exactly to the left, but it was certainly not associated with the political right in Brazilian mm -hmm. politics. Many Catholic leaders were publicly associated with the left-leaning party, the Workers' Party, that dominated Brazilian politics for, I don't know, probably the first 15 years of the 21st century. So in the Brazilian case... When you have a highly socially conservative religious group and a relatively liberal Catholic group, this led to Brazilian Protestants and Catholics at the leadership level taking opposing positions on key culture war kinds of issues. Right. These did not filter down as strongly to the masses, but where it did filter down was to fights over LGBTQ issues and things like that. Elsewhere in the region where evangelicals were highly socially conservative, but so were the Catholic leadership, evangelicals became less involved in politics because there was already a Catholic right that was really firmly entrenched that evangelicals really largely just got behind and didn't feel the need for their own unique political representation. Right. And so this importance of, in a sense, the culture wars, but to a certain extent, more narrow sexuality politics also played a role more recently with the rise of Bolsonaro. Right. And your book is about the period before, but can be extended to this. So how did Bolsonaro end up as the leader of the evangelical movement, or at least the preferred politician of the evangelical movement? Bolsonaro had been a political figure in Brazilian politics basically since the late 1980s. He had been in Congress for, you know, three decades when he decided to run for office. So he went from a relatively obscure member of Congress to suddenly being the standard bearer for the Brazilian, what you might call alt-right, though that's not a term that exists in Brazilian politics, but it's basically the Brazilian alt-right. Right. So how did he suddenly capture the zeitgeist and become this crusading figure for opposition to LGBTQ issues? He had always been kind of reactionary. And in fact, that was basically what he was known for, was he was something of a laughingstock for his rather reactionary political positions on things like defending the dictatorship. But when sexuality politics issues really started to become a point of contention between the Brazilian right and the Brazilian left, in the late 2000s and the early 2010s, he aligned himself as a reactionary who had been in Congress for a long time. He took yet another reactionary position, defining himself very strongly on the side of cultural conservatives on, you know, opposition to LGBTQ politics. And he was really consistent with his messaging from the very beginning. So not only in his anti-LGBTQ messaging, which was very much front and center, but also kind of Christian nationalist messaging. His campaign slogan was God above everything, Brazil above everyone. Right. 
Now, there are obvious similarities with Donald Trump and the support mm-hmm. of the evangelical movement, albeit that Bolsonaro is much more openly, I would say, Christian than Trump yes. and puts it much yes. higher. What are the key similarities and what are the key differences between the relationship of the evangelical movement with Bolsonaro in Brazil and with Trump in the U.S.? I would say biggest similarity is that they both like Trump a lot. <laughs> the, uh, the biggest differences, I would say, are Joe Bolsonaro has been in some ways even more radical than Trump. On but which as issues? Far as the movements, I would say in anti-science denialism related to the pandemic, and also to some extent probably on LGBTQ issues as well. Though he has not done nearly as much as he could have to persecute LGBTQ groups. And yet at the same time, at a rhetorical level, he's probably more radical. Right. How about race? Yeah. So differences on race, though, on the other hand, and this is a product of the environment, the social context. Donald Trump is far more radical on race, in large part because this is a major cleavage in American politics that is just not as salient in Brazilian politics, which is not to say there are not serious racial inequalities and racial problems in Brazil, but they have not had the sticking power in terms of culture war politics in Brazil that they have had in the U.S. And that would take a whole other podcast interview to talk about why. But it's enough to say that race is just not nearly as potent a mobilizer of political divisions and divisiveness in Brazilian politics as it has been in the U.S., So, I mean, I guess in some sense, he has emphasized to a greater extent sort of the sexuality politics cleavage and to a lesser extent, the racial politics cleavage. Now, given that the evangelical movement has been a major supporter of Bolsonaro in Brazil and of Trump in the U.S., one has to ask the question, what is the relationship to democracy here? Is the rise and particularly the political mobilization of the evangelical movement a threat to democracy or is this just contextual? Both (laughs) would be my answer. At times, it can be a threat to democracy in the sense that sometimes evangelicals are attracted to far-right politicians on the basis of their rather intolerant positions on certain issues. Evangelical support for Bolsonaro, for instance, is something that endangered Brazilian democracy. At the same time, evangelicalism has in many ways expanded the space for representation for groups that did not have adequate representation historically. So Catholic politicians have historically been upper class. Catholic politicians have not necessarily been associated with the people. So political engagement within churches has provided a basis for increased representation of groups that have been marginalized from the political system. Also, from the perspective of issues, representation of rightist positions on sexuality politics does increase the space of issue representation in part because citizens have tended to be more conservative on sexuality politics issues, at least in the Brazilian context, than have politicians during much of the newer democratic period. So, you know, persecution of LGBTQ groups is a bad thing for democracy. And at the same time, there has been, in terms of congruence or representation, increasing match between citizens and representatives and an opportunity for groups to feel included. Yeah. There's also a way in which evangelical leaders are pro-democracy in a lot of ways. They believe that democracy is good for the country and they 
have provided a lot of civic education and orientation about the democratic system to lay evangelicals, which again is a way of incorporating people who are traditionally not incorporated into the political system. Right. A classic tension between majority rule and minority rights. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about religion and politics in Latin America? I would say one misunderstanding that I see often, and I think we've to some extent fallen into this, even in this podcast interview, is portraying religion and politics in Latin America as being all about sort of an evangelical takeover of politics. Again, a country that I know the best is Brazil. And in Brazilian politics, I think because Catholicism has so much historical association with political power, there's almost an erasure of the role of the Catholic Church in power because it's assumed to be the normal or the default. And so elites, of whom academics are one part, um, Mm -hmm. academics tend to come out of elite groups. Elites, when they talk about religion and politics, they tend not to ever think about the Catholic Church's engagement in politics, and they tend to frame it in terms of, oh, religion and politics means evangelicals invading our political spaces. (laughs) As if religion hadn't been embedded in politics from the very foundation of Latin America. Absolutely. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Amy. Well, thank you very much, Cass. It was great. I enjoyed your questions. If you want to know more about Amy Smith, you can check out her website at www.amyericasmith.org, org.com. You can also follow Amy on Twitter at, at @amyericasmith. And finally, you can buy her book, Religion and Brazilian Democracy, Mobilizing the People of God, published in 2019 with Cambridge University Press, at or through your favorite independent bookstore. This was another episode of Radical, the podcast on the radical aspects of music, politics, and sports, hosted by me, Kas Mudde. The music is from the Godots, with their classic song, Karl Marx supported Millwall. If you want to know more about Radical, visit our website at www.radicalpodcast.com. Radical spelled R-A-D-I-K-A-A-L. And if you like the podcast, please rate and subscribe. Also, please share it with friends and on social media. Thank you for listening. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and leaning melody maker.